This is the Daily Dive Weekend Edition. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and we're running down some of the top stories of the week. Don't forget to check out the Daily Dive Monday through Friday for more news without the noise. It was the top story of the week. There was an update just about every day with something new. And in the end, it was all a hoax. Empire actor Jesse Smollett is now being accused of staging a homophobic, racist attack against himself in an attempt to raise his profile because he was angry at the salary he was making. Prosecutors say the actor gave detailed instructions for the fake attack. We spoke to Amar Madhani. He's a national correspondent for USA Today. He was in the courtroom for the bond hearing and fills us in on all the details. We started off by talking about what were the charges against Jesse Smollett. The charges for disorderly conduct by filing a false police report. That's what he did. You know, that's essentially the crime. He told what the police and prosecutors are alleging is that this is just this outlandish hoax and that he sought out to make himself look like the victim of this terrible, brutal, anti-black, homophobic crime. And he went to these extraordinary pains, according to the prosecutors, to stage this attack. uh, These two brothers that he recruited that he was friendly with, he gave them specific instructions on how he wanted that story to be beaten. He gave them money to even go buy the supplies, like the ski mask and the red hat that is supposed to look like the Trump MAGA hat that one of them wore. And they even like beforehand went and staked out the spot where he wanted the attack to take place. A lot of that, it seems, has to do with how the camera angles were. Yeah, exactly. And that was an important part for them. They wanted to make sure it was caught on camera. The camera angle was facing the wrong way. So that falls apart on, on their end. He's out on bail now. In the courtroom, did he show any remorse? Did he look like he was concerned about anything? Yeah, so it was it was remarkable to me as I was sort of furiously typing away and then looking up from time to time. One, this, uh, the proffer where they sort of detail the charges. You know, usually even in a heater case, you'll get uh, the state's attorney maybe going a page, four or five minutes and detailing what they have. This proffer, when it's typed out, is four pages, single-spaced. It took the assistant state's attorney, uh, Lanier, nearly 16 minutes to get through it. He looked at her. He was watching her. And as I kept looking back up to him, he, you know, his face was right on her. But at moments, as she was, she was detailing what to those in the court was just extraordinarily outlandish and, and almost crazy sounding as we listened to it. You could see uh, the motion in his face. You could see, you know, his, his mouth fell slightly agape at times as she was drawing out in just great detail the case that prosecutors and police were presenting. Chicago Police Superintendent Eddie Johnson went up there and said that he Smollett paid the two brothers 3500 bucks to stage the attack, and it was all because he was dissatisfied with the salary at his work. So this was just kind of an effort to raise his profile. Let's hear this quick clip of Eddie Johnson talking about the intense attention that was given to this case. Anytime a hate crime is reported in the city of Chicago, it gets the same attention. This didn't get any special attention. You all gave this more attention uh, specifically than we do. We give every hate crime in this city the same amount of vigor because there's no place for hatred in this city. There was a lot of stuff being made about how much, how many resources they were throwing at this. 
And, you know, it had a celebrity. It had all the stuff that it goes into a big sensational story. But they said that, you know, they didn't let anything else slip up underneath this investigation. So it was painstaking detective work that really led us to this conclusion. A couple things. One, yes. You know, like I think it's pretty extraordinary how they put this case together, basically using more than 50 cameras, 35 police cameras, 20 privately owned cameras to sort of piece together these guys' movement and then to get to a point where, you know, they could pulling it back where they were able to catch that these guys were in a ride share at one point and being able to find that ride share driver and get the warrants to find out the information of who are these two brothers. That itself is sort of astounding and also perhaps uh, a little bit interesting to reflect on just how many cameras are in our yeah. cities these days. But there's also this sense, I think, if, particularly for this city, that one has an enormous amount of crime, an enormous amount of violence, but also an extraordinary amount of distrust of the police, a lot of it well-earned from the Black and Latino communities. That all falls into this backdrop. And they took this case seriously from the beginning, also because this was high profile, but also if they hadn't handled it properly and they had messed it up, it would have been an avalanche of problems for Eddie Johnson and for the mayor. The last thing I want to focus on is uh, the motive. We still don't know. There won't be full closure until we get some type of statement from Jesse Smollett himself, like either owning up to it or mounting some type of defense to this. I wanted to replay this clip from the interview he did with Robin Roberts and then make an observation after that. I want that video found so badly. Number one, I want them to find the people that did it. Number two, I want them to stop being able to say alleged attack. Number three, I want them to see that I fought back. And I want a little gay boy who might watch this to see that I fought back. And it does not take anything away from people that are not able to do that. But I fought back. They ran off. I didn't. You know, they're saying that the motivation was he was dissatisfied with his salary. But hearing that, you know, it also makes it feel like that camera angle that didn't pan out for him was so important. He wanted to prop himself up as a hero. And we know he's outspoken against the president. He's an LGBTQ activist. He wanted to prop himself up as a hero and everything fell apart on him. And it really just, uh, it's a slap in the face to all the stuff he purportedly stands for. I I can't argue with that. I think, you know, after rehearing that quote from the Good Morning America interview, what also came out was prosecutor saying that he basically told these guys, beat me up, but don't beat me too bad and make it so I can fight back. And that really juxtaposes against that quote of I fought back. What's the next step? When is he in court again? He's he's done uh, due in court for a little while, then until March. He hasn't been indicted yet. I would not be surprised if that comes um, sooner than later. So that that could be the next shoe to drop. And there's also the possibility, though it's uh, it seems increasingly more narrow, that the feds might get involved because there's a belief that he mailed this false letter. And so right. he used the U.S. Postal Service. So that's still a possibility out there. It might not come to fruition. And that's how it all started with him sending that letter. Amir Madhani, a national correspondent for USA Today. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. It was such a shame how this whole story played out. You want to have sympathy for a person who might have been attacked, but for this guy to go and stage the whole thing just leaves a bad taste in your mouth. Miranda, what are your thoughts about this whole thing? Well, I told you this privately when the story first came out that I thought it sounded like total BS. I wasn't 
sure it was to this extent. It felt to me like he had set this up for his friends. I didn't know why, clearly. Right. I had told you I had two theories. This was either some weird setup to get attention or it was like a weird sex thing gone wrong because it's the worst snowstorm in right. history in Chicago in a generation. And he's out at two o'clock in the morning getting a sandwich. It just none of it from the very beginning made any sense. There was skeptics from the beginning, but nobody wanted to call him out on right. it just yet. Uh, little by little, there was things. And as soon as those brothers were arrested, obviously they're going to turn on him. They have no allegiances to him. He only paid them thirty five hundred bucks. Is that enough to keep your mouth shut? No way. This thing isn't wrapped up until he finally comes forward and explains himself. And who knows if that's ever going to happen. Thanks, Miranda. Thanks, Oscar. Here's a great story about good detective work, DNA, and a genealogy site that are once again credited with helping to solve another cold case. It's a story of Jerry Westrom. He was charged with a 1993 murder after police obtained his DNA through a napkin he used after eating a hot dog and then discarded the napkin. The DNA was matched through a genealogy site and police were able to track him down. We spoke to Ryan Mack. He's a reporter at BuzzFeed News. And we started off by talking about how a hot dog helped solve this cold case murder. So he's a uh, Minneapolis area businessman. He's a father. Apparently he likes to go to hockey games. And yeah, he was charged in this case. He, like you said, ate a hot dog at a hockey rink while he was being trailed by a few officers. He discarded the napkin in a, in, I guess, a receptacle and they recovered it and matched that DNA to evidence found at a case from 1993. So this is a pretty big break in that case. Describe to us how the whole genealogy website comes into play. Like I said, uh, has shades of the Golden State Killer hunt also. They had this DNA from the crime scene that happened in the 90s where uh, Jeannie Childs was murdered. And they had this DNA. They take it to this genealogy site to see who they can match. And he was one of two people that came up. They had DNA from that scene, I believe, from a comforter, a towel, and some other articles of clothing or things in the room. And yeah, and basically what the Golden State Killer case has shown is that you can take DNA from a few decades ago and you can run it through these databases that people use to track their genealogy or family trees. And in this case, it came up with two potential suspects. Jerry Westrom happened to match some of the characteristics. For example, he was he lived in that area where the, the murder happened at the time. And officers found enough probable cause and, and ended up trailing him to this, this hockey rink and then watching him eat this hot dog, I guess. <laughs> I, I mean, we should have laughed, but that's just kind of a, a funny part of the case. Yeah, they yeah. You, you have to tail the guy until you can find that thing. You know, he wiped his face with it. It's going to have saliva or something on it. And then that's the DNA we can use. After they arrested him, they got more DNA from him, and that was also a match for the DNA they found at the crime scene. They asked him, and he's like, I don't know why my DNA is there. And obviously, he's uh, you know not admitting any guilt. But this is an increasing trend that a lot of uh, officers are and investigators are using to try and catch people. I think they said nationwide since spring of 2018, 
more than 50 cold cases have been solved using public genealogy websites. Right. And I think that is a big part of the question here is a lot of people are going into these things, using them to track their family history or find that long lost relative. Little do they know that that could be, end up being used to implicate a relative later down the line. And so you, you get this kind of interesting privacy versus safety concern that's popping up with, with these issues and with these tests. And yeah, it remains to be seen how this will be regulated moving forward. I mean, there's even DNA sites that are working now with the FBI to solve a lot of these violent crimes. Right. My colleague Salvador Hernandez actually broke that story, and he confirmed with this company called Family Tree DNA that they were, in fact, cooperating with the FBI for this kind of stuff. And that was a little alarming. I mean, they're not notifying their users that they were doing this, but when the FBI came to them with uh, requests to kind of run their information through their databases, they were just cooperating offhand. Just the fascinating part about this is that these cases happen and things run dry. You know, they have the DNA, but they don't know how to match it. Or with this case of Jerry Westrom, no way to really connect him. And when the original case that happened in 1993, a neighbor had said, uh, oh, you know, I noticed water coming out from under the door or something like that. And, and mm -hmm. they went in and they found the body in the shower, water running. The woman, Jeannie Childs, was naked, only wearing socks. And she was stabbed multiple times. But then things kind of go cold and people forget about the case. And then just nothing really happens after that. These new genealogy sites and kind of getting near and then matching people up. I mean, it's just a boon for these investigators that have all these cold cases that never went anywhere. People have known that you can use DNA for years. I mean, it's been an investigative technique for years, but you need something to match it against. And I think that's where these, these databases come into play. These are things that people have started to use in the last five or so years with the hopes of trying to track their family history, like I said, or, or again, find a long lost relative. And so that's the, the kind of database that's being created to match against. And you're getting this interesting relationship between law enforcement and, and this new technology. Investigators said that they're sure that picking up that napkin out of the discarded food container is going to stand legal challenges. The courts usually say if somebody throws something away, it's fair game. And the investigators were also asked, are you guys going to continue using these genealogy sites to try to track down more people? And they're like, yeah, why, why wouldn't we? So you're going to start seeing a lot more of these types of stories and hopefully a lot of cases uh, being closed. So Ryan Mack, senior tech reporter for BuzzFeed News, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. In tech news this week, Samsung unveiled the first foldable phone, the Galaxy Fold. It's the latest offering that boasts an Infinity Flex display. It allows the phone to have a tablet-sized screen, and then you can fold it in half and fit it in your pocket. It can run three apps at once, but it costs $2,000. For more on this, we spoke to Rob Verger. He's an assistant tech editor at Popular Science. And we just started off by talking about all the latest from Samsung. We got a whole bunch of new gadgets from Samsung on Wednesday, and they revealed their new S10, Galaxy S10 phones. And there's actually four of those. So we got a whole slew of new S10 devices. And three of the four of them have this ultrasonic fingerprint sensor that's built right into the display. And it uses sound waves to look at your fingerprint and get a kind of three-dimensional image of it and uses that to basically validate your identity and give you a way to unlock the phone. And it's a really clever way of 
know, using biometrics. You know, all smartphone makers have to figure out how do we let somebody unlock the phone? You know, right. maybe it's Apple uses Face ID, for example. Obviously, fingerprint sensors aren't new on phones, but an ultrasonic fingerprint sensor built into the display is, I think, a pretty cool new trick. I have an iPhone 10 right now, and it does have the facial recognition thing. It works pretty good, but I always do miss that fingerprint sensor. Uh, it's just easy to open it real quick. You know, if you're, as you're holding and picking up your phone, it's already on its way to being open. You know, Samsung always makes beautiful phones, beautiful displays. They're great phones, but briefly tell us how the ultrasonic fingerprint sensor works. It uses sound waves to detect the three-dimensional image of your fingerprint. Right. Well, you've probably heard of like an ultrasound in medicine, right? Which is using sound waves to get an image of something. So they're doing something similar. Obviously, it's going to vary in some technical ways, but it's using sound waves that you can't hear. So they're ultrasonic. And those sound waves are bouncing off of your fingerprint and returning to the sensor. So it's kind of doing, it's getting an active reading of what your fingerprint is. And that's different from like a capacitive fingerprint sensor, which is like what was built into the home buttons of older Apple iPhones. So it's using these sound waves to bounce off of your fingerprint. And from that, it's looking at the ridges and the valleys, and it can sense the depth of the valleys as well. So that lets it get a three-dimensional or textured look at your fingerprint to validate it that way. How much are these phones going to cost us? They're all around $900,000, which is pretty par for the course for flagship smartphone these days. All right, let's talk about the next one that they unveiled also, the Galaxy Fold phone, which... A lot of people are saying you're going to start seeing more of these foldable type displays. This one does come at a price at $1,980, so basically $2,000. And it's going to be available starting April 26th, so that's pretty soon. Tell us a little bit about that one. Yeah, it seems pretty science fiction-y, and it's kind of exciting. But you're right, it is almost $2,000. It's funny because my guess is that most consumers who buy Samsung products will go out and buy something like the S10, kind of your normal kind of smartphone. But the Galaxy Fold got all this attention. And that's because it can fold open like a book. And when it does, it reveals this screen that's like a tablet-sized screen. It's about 7.3 inches across. When you close it like a book on the front of it is a smaller screen that's 4.6 inches across. So they're really aiming this as a luxury device that some people will use as a phone. And then later on, you're at home, you're on your couch, and you unfold it and use it as a tablet to consume Netflix or or whatever. Yeah, this thing is so interesting. And I understand the purpose of it. I don't know if the consumer at large is ready for something like this. The display you were talking about in the front, it's not as nice as some of the other uh, smartphones out there, even the S10s or the iPhones. It almost seems like uh, you're going to be looking at it for notifications like you would like on an Apple Watch or something. And then you open the display and yes, then it does look much more impressive. Tell us about that screen there, because since it's a foldable display, I've read somewhere that it doesn't completely lay flat when you open it. They say that it's able to fold at least 200,000 times, which works out to over five years if you fold it 100 times a day. The interesting thing will be, you know, a couple things. One will be to see how does this phone hold up over time? You know, how do the gears work? How does that phone, you know, the screen that they say is made out of a new kind of polymer, how does that hold up over time with all this kind of this, this new use case, right? So one is, you know, how does it hold up physically? And I think the other question is, what's it like to use? It can run up to three apps at a time. And I like so that. that. Means, yeah, so you can multitask. You know, you can have a, a YouTube video open, you can have WhatsApp on, and, you know, a third app. And some people may love that, and they're like, this is so fun, I'm being so productive. And other people might think, God, this is, like, overwhelming. I don't know which screen to put where and whether I should just close it and use the small screen. So some people may find a freedom in using it. They're like, wow, this is the future. And I think other people may think this just this phone is just a little bit much for me. Rob Verger, assistant tech editor at Popular Science. Thank you very much for joining us. My pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. 
All right, that's it for us this weekend. Be sure to check out The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow The Daily Dive on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The Daily Dive is produced by Miranda Moreno and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this was your Daily Dive Weekend Edition.